You. Me? You. It's your lucky day. It is? Uh-huh. You got a plane. I have? It might just save your life. It will? the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 39 and 40, which begin with the Hellfire gun getting all gummed up and end with the seaplane gunner peppering Gregor's tower. Our special guests today are Norman and Cassandra from the Lord of the Rings Minute podcast. Hi. Hello. It's good to have you both back. Yeah. It's good to be here. (laughs) We were discussing before we hit record that while this episode is coming out in December and you are free of your burdens, we are recording this in the distant past when you are still under the sway of the ring. Yes. No, the ring has been destroyed. That's true. <laughs> we're recovering. We recording this. <laughs> we're getting crowned in Minas Tirith right yes. now. So Frodo has woken from his sleep in Gondor. And- <laughs> Everyone was there. We have like two endings to go, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, only two endings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very glad that despite this being our foray into, what's the proper phrasing, long ass movies, mm-hmm. that I think we that decided to do phrasing. two minutes at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot imagine being in the situation that you two put yourselves in where you're doing four hour movies. Mm-hmm. one minute at a time. Yeah. It's a little ridiculous to think of. Every time we go above 200, I'm just like, what are we doing here? Why? <laughs> what did Peter Jackson do this for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you take an opportunity to watch the three-hour cut of Waterworld that I sent you? What's your history with this movie? I've only seen bits and pieces of this, and it was like a long time ago. But honestly... Judging from the two minutes that we're about to talk about, I kind of want to get like really drunk and just watch it. (laughs) I know for a fact I have sat through this movie start to finish at least once, but nothing in this minute looks familiar to me whatsoever. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good or a bad sign. What you said us to watch started playing and I was like, yep, that looks like Mad Max on the ocean already. Yeah. I was in the same position. I've seen this movie before all the way through, but scenes like this, I have no memory of this. Well, Julia, you're the kind of person who zones out during fight scenes. I do. I do zone out during fight scenes. This is going to be a long fight scene. This goes on for (laughs) like two months, our time. Oh, oh my God. It's a long one. It's like six or seven episodes worth, Mm -hmm. which works out to... Month and a half, two months. Almost 15 minutes of movie time in one fight scene. Why? We spent, what, 40 minutes in Helm's Deep? Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) With how many millions they spent to build this atoll, you better bet they're going to spend as much time on this set as possible before they just peace out on a boat for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So 40 minutes in, right? Is this battle what really starts the plot of this movie going? Yes. Is there a plot to this movie? (laughs) I notice our main character is in a cage, much like Max often finds himself in (laughs) Mm -hmm. during Mm -hmm. this whole situation. If you want to be analogous to a previous Mad Max movie, this fight is very much like the chase scene before you reach the atomic storm in Mad Max Fury Road, Mm. where... The war boys realize that Furiosa is up to something and Max is brought by Nux to the war rig. Mm-hmm. And you're a fair bit into that movie when that scene happens, but you're nowhere near as far into Fury Road when it happens as you are here in Waterworld. Because yeah. as you mentioned, we are 40 minutes into the runtime. It's definitely the first real action scene Of the plot proper. Of consequence. Yes. There have been little things before now that have helped to set up the plot, 
but this is the action scene moving the plot forward more directly. Okay. The one thing that stuck out to me immediately watching this, other than our main character being in a cage, was them literally sweeping bullets into a bucket to deliver to the gunner. Oh my god, mm-hmm. yeah. I was just like, well, this is appropriately bananas. I <laughs> <laughs> just, oh wow. There's a lot of bullets. That's the scene where I was like, I think I want to watch this whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm glad you brought that up, Norman, because that's where we kick off this clip. Because the Hellfire gun at the tail end of last episode was punching so many holes in the side of the atoll wall. And here it seems to have stopped. And so Chuck, the Hellfire gunner, rips off his mask and he's yelling at his assistants to swab the barrels And I can only assume that because the smokers make their own ammunition, because it's a water world, there's no ammunition factories that they can just go to, that the ammunition has got to be gunky and dirty as all of the smoker stuff is. So yeah, when the gun stops working, you take your little swab and you stick it down the barrel and polish it up and hopefully get it working again. (laughs) Yeah, one of the beauties of mass production is uniformity, and they don't have that. Mm-hmm. I imagine that these are hand restuffed, that they're <laughs> taking those shells, taking them back, and they probably have a darkly lit room full of slaves packing bullets. Yeah. Mm. Why else keep the casings? Because they're not going to be machining new casings no. for these bullets. No, and that's also pointless. Like, Whatever you think of the smokers, they're recycling those. (laughs) That is better. (laughs) I guess a better question is, where do they get the stuff to make gunpowder? Yeah, gunpowder, primer caps, like, these are all integral parts of bullets that we never see them making. No, it's a mystery. The plot of Waterworld is that the whole world is flooded, right? That's the deal. Yeah. And you need to find stuff that you generally only find in, like, swampland to make gunpowder. Where? My only hope, my only thread of thought that helps me keep the smokers grounded is that there must have been vast quantities of everything you need to be a Waterworld Raider on their main ship in storage compartments. And that somehow lasted however many X number of years between the real world and this fantasy Mm post-apocalypse. Do you know how long it's been that the world has been flooded in the movie? Hundreds. Like four or five hundred years. Wow, what? Like a stupid amount of time. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But not long enough for mutation and evolution to happen. (laughs) Well, that'll come up way later. Yeah. Yeah. By that time, no one should have bullets. Yeah. No one. People should yeah. be hucking tridents at each other. People should be throwing <laughs> spears and have bow and arrows. Yeah. No gas. Where the hell would they get gas? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you got to watch the whole movie. Oh, my God. Where in the hell are they getting gasoline? <laughs> They're boiling down dinosaurs, Norman. Oil rigs would be destroyed by a flood that is mm-hmm. high enough to destroy most of oh, the planet. Oh, that's true. Yeah. They're not that tall. <laughs> I am flummoxed. <laughs> It makes me think about the recent explosion in Lebanon, Lebanon, where it was a warehouse over full of explosives. And at this point, I don't remember exactly what the explosives were. But the point is is that humans are really good and stupid enough to store ridiculous amounts of raw material. Yes, that's true. If that had been on a boat and had been something, well, it was obviously explosive, inflammable, whatever it was. I don't remember. I think it was both like there were explosives nearby. Yeah. A warehouse full of fertilizer and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we're really good at storing this stuff. Yeah. If people had the forethought to put it on tankers and cargo ships instead of warehouses, first of all, it would save whatever portion of that city that was exploded if it blew up and they would still have it around. 400 years, though? I don't know. Yeah, that's an awfully long time. It's <laughs> a really long time. That's why the narrator yeah, at the beginning time. of the movie is just like, the future. It's like, yeah. okay, <laughs> enough said. Say no In more. The year and he doesn't. XX. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suppose that there were stretches of peace where they didn't need gunpowder 
bullet makings where they wouldn't need offensive and defensive explosives. They would still need gasoline, though. Does it expire? Gunpowder and gasoline, most explosives become less stable over time. Okay, that's fun. So they wouldn't keep that one. <laughs> Eventually, they become incredibly yeah. unstable. <laughs> Have you seen these two minutes? It's pretty unstable. <laughs> 400 years. How in the hell are there jet skis and planes? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I love the jet skis, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. No, the, the ramp that floats in the water that they crank up into place. And then the people that look like they're in a Fanta commercial on jet ski, mm -hmm. <laughs> on the skis yeah. to jump up in. They're great. That's amazing. But I have too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's what? Fiberglass and plastic mm -hmm. and all of these materials that, in theory, don't break down. Not in this amount of time. Yeah. Not break down when they're not constantly covered in salt water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Salt water is corrosive. The sheer amount of salt water that these people have to deal with just creates so many more problems and obstacles narratively. Mm -hmm. I mean, this wall looks suitably rusty and disgusting. When the smokers are firing their guns from their jet skis, which is frankly awesome to look at. One of the atollers at the top of the wall we see very early on in this clip, it looks like he is shot, and then the other two atollers see him get shot and then duck down of their own power. But whether it's the Hellfire gun punching holes in the wall, or even the smaller caliber bullets, the wall doesn't really offer that much protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it should be offering at least a little bit more. I mean, it's more protection than, let's say, a paper screen that you find at Home Goods. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but it doesn't look like it's much more than a paper screen level protection. Oh, it looks so flimsy. It looks like what? Like like tin roof or whatever? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just looks like tin roof. And then we have this crazy guy in the lab who's yeah, just who is tr that? trying to panic. <laughs> oh. Toss stuff away and get out of here. I assume he has some important information that's going to be necessary for the plot and the future of mankind, and he needs to save it. But knowing nothing about what else is going to happen in this movie, because there's only one scene I remember at all from ever seeing this movie before. So this guy stumbling around the lab is Gregor. He's played by Michael Jeter. I'm trying to think of what is the number one thing that you will recognize him from. He was... Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle from Elmo's World on PBS. <laughs> Mr. Noodle. Oh my God. That just from like. Muppets to Mad Max. That unlocked a core memory. I just like. Oh my God. Wow. And I'm really glad you guys caught that reference because if you guys had no idea who I was talking about, I would have felt very <laughs> foolish. I'm glad, too, because I have no idea who that is. See, my brother is eight years younger than me, so I like saw a lot of children's TV when I like wasn't young enough to have, I don't know, been feasibly watching it. Right. So, like, wow. He was also in Jurassic Park 3. He played a guy named Udesky. I don't remember anything about that movie. He always has that big mustache, and that's the best way to recognize him. Yeah. And the receding hairline, too, but Gregor... He is the Atoll's inventor type, and so him stumbling around his tower here, he is a self-confessed, not a brave man. So his priority here is preparing his little airship gondola to leave. Mm. Which has been hinted at in the past that they have a way to leave, potentially, but we haven't really learned anything about what he is preparing so far. But he is definitely presented to us as the mad scientist type and mm -hmm. has been the whole time that we have known him very scatterbrained mm -hmm. talking to himself like talking through problems out loud which is a shame that that's like a mad scientist stereotype because i do that all the time <laughs> and it's fantastic sometimes you just need to hear things out loud instead of in your head obviously you're a mad scientist then right clearly <laughs> <laughs> This contraption that he's setting up gives me uh, like Leonardo da Vinci sketches vibes, just kind of the look of it. Oh, like the windmill thing? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely it does. I'm pretty sure there's a video on the Atoll YouTube page that talks about 
Gregor's airship, but him putting this contraption on the back of the gondola is one of the elements that make it a airship and not a balloon. Mm. The other one being something that we'll see happen next week, but the gas bag that lifts the gondola is not full of hot air, which is another reason it's not a proper balloon, even though people look at it and say, oh, look, it's a balloon. It's not a balloon. It's an airship. <laughs> Words matter, even though they sound ridiculous. We'll get into this more later, but I do have to ask, is an airship the same thing as a dirigible? Or are there subtle differences? I think all dirigibles are airships, but not all airships are dirigibles. Okay. Yeah, wait until next week because I will when be able to do my deep dive airship. into airships because I freaking love airships. Yes, you do. <laughs> I do. They're like my favorite thing. I read books specifically because they have airships in them. Yes. Nice. Oh, nice. Which is saying a lot because I don't read all that many books. <laughs> this is this is chaos. Everything that happens in these two minutes is just totally chaotic. And the whole time we've got Kevin Costner as the Mariner locked in his cage and the first thing we see of him in this clip is him straining to reach through the bars of his cage to get his hands on an arrow that sinks into the bog out of his reach. Mm -hmm. For context, this bog that he's hanging over, it's called the Organo Barge, mm -hmm. and it's where the Atollers commit their dead. Yeah, it's their recycling pit. Yeah. Oh. Of all organic material. That's all lovely. All organic, organic material, material. Goes in the pit. There's so many bog mummies down there. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> yep. So you can understand why the Mariner is trying so desperately to escape this cage because he Ew. doesn't want to yes. get buried in the poop bog. Right. Yeah. And he was about right. to be executed by being forcibly submerged in the bog. Ah. Oh. That's why he's in a cage right above it. Mm. That's a terrible way to die. No, it yeah. Really? Getting is. drowned in a porta potty? That just sounds terrible. <laughs> yep. <Yeah>. Yep. <laughs> and his main motivator. To get this arrow is that he wants to then use the arrow to, I'm assuming, pick the lock. Pick the lock. Yeah. I did a little bit of looking at this specific type of lock, and it's clearly a old school lever lock. So you'd put your key in, you'd turn it, and it would slide a series of levers that would then mm -hmm. pull the bolt out from the latch or whatever the top part is. And so you can understand why he's going in there looking for something thin where he asked for a mooring cleat when he was talking to Gregor at night, and I think mm -hmm. that was going to be a sort of leverage More of thing. A, just break it. The arrow would have been try and get it in the hole and mess with it there. And jiggle it a little. Mm -hmm. mm. Shaking the cage isn't doing him any favors. Yeah, he's expending a lot of energy shaking that cage. When you can't do anything else, I suppose you shake the cage. He's raging against the machine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how did they, where'd this cage come from? Do they have welders? That provides more questions. Well, they must, because look at the like railing that this dude's like running up. Yeah, the know? whole atoll is made of metal. So yeah, they must have welders, which requires fuel and more yeah. fuel materials. Or <laughs> mm -hmm. So, mm-hmm. But they do have electricity. That's what Gregor's main purpose is, is that he runs the generator. So it comes on at night. They don't use it during the day. What does the generator run on? Oh, wind power. Wind power. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's at sea, so it's always windy, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, that makes sense. That would make me think that somewhere in this world, in a place you'll never see, there's still practically a city on the top of an old mountain. Maybe. I think you should watch the whole movie. Oh, yes. You'd I be really delighted. think you should watch the whole movie. <laughs> I don't remember, like, anything. But I just imagine just, like, a totally modern-looking place having been rebuilt somewhere. Oh, there you go. We are still under attack by smokers, and so we see that they are utilizing some water cannons to attempt to push back the smokers. Unfortunately, despite the effectiveness of these water cannons earlier in the movie, pushing away rowboats and small sailboats, when you've got a engine-powered siege ladder boat coming up on your wall, the water spray isn't going to do much, and the dude on that cannon gets shot very quick. Yeah, I was thinking about these water cannons and their effectiveness and trying to think of creative ways that these could actually do something. They should hook up the water cannon to their poop bog and, and do like biological warfare. <laughs> That's very interesting because being an uneducated person on the subject, an early instance of biological warfare was the sieging force throwing dead plague bodies over the wall. 
Yeah. So this would be a similar thing in reverse. Mm -hmm. The only thing I could really think of for a good purpose of the cannons is to make the visibility low. But I don't think that that's really going to do much. I mean, it makes sense. You use the water cannon to reduce the visibility of the people on the boat. And then you use your catapults on the wall to launch your flaming grease balls, I'm assuming. (laughs) Right, because it's staying on fire somehow in marble water. Grease fires don't go out with water. Right, exactly. So it's got to be like fat or grease. Yeah. You look at There's the, a lot of fat on dead bodies. You look at the fire once it catches on that ladder boat, and the dudes on the boat jump into the water as opposed to trying to fight it. So yeah, if you are scooping seawater and throwing it on that grease fire, it's just going to... It's going to throw it around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Someone gets impaled by a flaming harpoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I love the medieval weaponry that the Atollers have. Oh, it's so clever. It's exactly what people should be using. I love also that they use their catapult and they nail a guy on a jet ski with the catapulted ball, which just seems like, for the Atollers, super lucky shot. Yeah, it's For a the jet shot. skier, super unlucky shot. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that tells us that the Atollers practice, that this is an actual skill Mm. that these people use, which I believe because the few minutes prior to this is when we saw the start of the attack and they had lookouts. The lookouts saw the attackers coming, called out an alarm, and while things were chaotic, everyone got to their posts relatively quickly. It wasn't complete chaos. It was just busy people running around, but they were running to something. So it does seem like they do drills and practice. I leave that all up to the enforcer Mm -hmm. and his skills as a military leader, if you want to call him that. (laughs) A militia leader. Yeah. The combination of the catapult, the oversized crossbow, the ladder boat, all of this made me think of you two specifically because these are all things that you would see in a Lord of the Rings movie in one mm-hmm. of the many siege attacks that you see over the course of the series. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about this, this what I, goes on here. It's just insane. I lo- well, I love the four guys on water skis. Yeah. Uh, really, they look like they're in a Fanta commercial. It's this the best. Just, this is just like a vacation spot is thing. Is this the equivalent of that Urukai with the torch? Yeah, I think so. Like, breaching the wall. <laughs> Oh my god. god, it's so funny. And then the way they all just like dump into the water. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Atollers could also have some kind of defense in the water on the other side of the wall if they're aware that this is how smokers attack places. <sighs> like you could have a net or something across the top of the water and like if they land in it, they just get stuck. <laughs> that is a really interesting idea. Gregor could have come up with a quick setup method where it lives like over to one side and then when they pull a lever after an alarm is called mm-hmm. a net comes and covers that middle ring of water that's funny because further down in the movie somewhere i don't really remember where the jet skis do this thing where they dive under the water and go underneath into is that this fight yeah okay so the net would be helpful there too mm-hmm. Gregor, he may be a mad scientist, but I don't think he's really all that creative. <laughs> also, he should have thought of that. How do the smokers know that there was a safe place to land on the other side of this wall? A spy was in the city. Earlier, oh. you've got this guy named So they, they knew the exactly what they were getting into when they attacked. Played by Gerard Murphy. He went in, scoped out, slipped out, and it was great because the mariner was arrested and put in the cage on suspicion of being a smoker spy. Meanwhile... This other guy who was a smoker spy just gets to waltz out of there. Mm -hmm. Pretty as you please. Dramatic irony. I want to call attention real quick. There's a shot just under a minute into this clip where we see a couple of smokers and they are on motorized surfboards. What? And they are getting attacked by the Atollers and falling off of them. (laughs) Oh, yep. I see it. These smokers are professional surfers from Hawaii's North Shore. And the boards they're writing on were prototypes that would be released to the public after the movie came out. That's awesome. Wow. Were they movie branded? I don't believe so. Probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did not know that this sort of thing existed, so I can't imagine they were too, too successful. Oh, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh-huh. Because the first documented motorized surfboard was built in the 1930s in Australia for lifeguards to use in order to go out and rescue people. Oh, that's huh. very clever. I like it. The motorized surfboard, which was also known at the time as the surf scooter, made its grand appearance at Bondi Beach. And then about 13 to 18 years later, Hollywood inventor Joe Gilpin invented his version of the motorized surfboard, which had the benefit of looking much more like a non-motorized surfboard. He was able to hide a lot of the mechanical components under the water or in the board itself, but he didn't actually produce it for widespread distribution. So later on, Alfred Bloomingdale, heir to the Bloomingdale department store fortune, he is credited with conceiving the first real motorized surfboard in 1965, but it's more likely that he just bankrolled the creation of it and then took credit for it. Huh. Later on in 1973, the company North Hance Engineering launched their Skedaddle surfboard powered by a 157cc engine. What? 157ccs? Yep. That's gigantic. Yeah, it's, it's a big engine. <laughs> like a Vespa scooter is somewhere between like 50 and 80. Jeez. Then in the 1980s, Honeycomb surfboard producer Neil Townsend introduced his Aquajet, a propeller-powered surfboard. The first company that was able to successfully launch a motorized surfboard was Jet Surf from the Czech Republic. They started in 1994 developing high-powered, lightweight combustible engines for racing, and according to the article I read, they are still the leader in petrol-powered surfboards and host the Jet Surf World Cup. What? Okay. I want to watch this. Do they televise these races? Because that's amazing. <laughs> oh, I hope they do. I saw a few clips, and yeah, these are dudes on surfboards, and they've essentially adapted the mechanism that lets a jet ski propel itself through the water into a surfboard. Mm -hmm. So it's just dudes on boards and they're slaloming through courses and they've got their motorcycle helmets on and they're falling off left and right. Oh my God. It's insanity. And I That's love it. Awesome. So for 2020, it was back in the end of February, early March. It was held in Florida. So... Let's see when it's coming out for 2021. Man, I bet if they're glad they the did that time. back in February. If they're, right. <laughs> yeah, even if they're even doing that this year. Right. Huh. The Jet Surf World Cup. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On first glance, without doing like a deep dive, the 2021 information is not really available. Mm. So 157cc engine. I can't get over that. That's absurd. <laughs> that is really big. <laughs> it's got to weigh like 30, 40 pounds. <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine the logistics of trying to place that in a board so that it balances out and then also doesn't sink? Yeah. It has to be, um, what's it called, a, a flathead engine, so the pistons are directly opposed, laying flat underneath mm. the board. You know way more about engines than I do. Yeah. Because Same. I know zero about <laughs> engines. <laughs> <laughs> and these jet-powered surfboards are not the only interesting boat that we see. We mentioned earlier the ramp boats that are coming into position. We saw them from a big overhead shot. We see them here where you've got the deacon sitting at the back of his boat and he's very confident about this whole venture that they're undertaking. And he has his flag wavers signal the ramps to get into position and they have these big crank things that bring the platforms up. And yeah, they're floating catamaran style ramp boats. This guy, the deacon, is his scepter a golf club? Because that's what it looks like in this quick little shot. Oh, it's I, absolutely a yeah, golf club. Yeah, I think so. It's definitely a, a golf club. And his seat is motorized, correct? Or is it just spinny? I think it's just spinny. Spinny, like an office chair. Okay. Because yeah. when we get his one line for these minutes, he is like swaying back and forth mm -hmm. in his chair. And I was really hoping that it was mechanical so that he would actually have to be taking his joystick and going back and forth, back, <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> that thought delighted me very much more than he's just using his legs to sway like we do all the time in office chairs. Yeah. He's got none to worry about. Everything is going perfectly fine on his end. Yeah. It's a very carefree motion. When we're stressed out, we don't really do that. His confidence is very well communicated. Mm-hmm. 
it is a shame that you didn't get minutes with more Deacon in them because he is spectacular. When did this movie come out? It was in the 90s, 90... right? 1995. Five. This looks like shit. <laughs> <laughs> 95? Are you kidding me? This looks like a 90s movie to me. No, man. It looks like, like a 70s movie. <laughs> the 90s did look like shit. Okay. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Because we think of the 90s as like the last decade, mm-hmm. that things, generally speaking, look about the same as they do now. But in reality, this movie is 25 years old and rightfully looks like shit. Well, That's it doesn't so look that bad because it's all practical. Yeah. It looks like an 80s movie. None of this scene is in a pool somewhere. They are out on the ocean. <laughs> it is out on the ocean. Mm-hmm. How much did this movie cost to film in the 90s? What was the oh, number? 175 million? Way more than it should have. It cost wow. $175 million to film in the first half of the 90s. Yeah. This Atoll set is a full set. It's also the second one they built. Because the first one sank. Oh, oh no. <laughs> this was filmed off the North Shore of Hawaii. A storm no. blew through. Not the calmest place in the world. Right. They just picked a bad place to film. Yeah. The set is impressive. It's really cool that it like actually floats and they're like, filming on the water but like as far as like the i don't know the just the the way everything looks on camera okay yeah it, it doesn't look great as a partner to my question of how much this movie cost to make how much did it make at the box office <laughs> not that much <laughs> by now it has made a profit yeah it's taken by, 25 by years yeah <laughs> by now after all of video release and dvd blu-ray yeah all of that streaming stuff. It, rights, eventually anything. it turned a profit and it was more successful overseas, if I remember correctly, right? I think so. right? Than in the United States, which is kind of typical. Yeah. Americans are so judgmental. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Americans invented this format of picking things apart. <laughs> We're so judgmental. Right? Because <laughs> this is considered like one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history, right? Oh, yeah. I think unfairly. There have certainly been bigger flops. This one just. Was a, I think, a minor flop in quite dramatic fashion. Well, I mean, I guess it matters, like, what the difference between how much it uh, how much it cost versus like how much they made, like the first month of ticket sales, yeah. whether or not Hollywood was going to consider it a big flop. Yeah, there was so much tabloid gossip about this movie because Kevin Costner was going through a divorce at the time, mm. and they were having so many production hangups. And the director for this movie, Kevin Reynolds was the same director from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And so there was friction between the two Kevins on that movie. And so there was additional friction between the two Kevins on this movie. At one point, Reynolds just walked off the film. So there was that whole thing. It was very turbulent. Why didn't they just recast the lead? Because (laughs) one of the reasons... The script was picked up in the first place is because Kevin Costner oh, was interested he was in it. attached to it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> I want to be Mad Max well, that on sucks. the water. <laughs> yeah. And then he would come back later on for the postman and be like, I want to be Mad Max, but not a cop, a mailman. <laughs> Kevin Costner just made some decisions in the 90s. <laughs> oh, he certainly did. We cut over to the enforcer who is standing on top of the wall and he's holding an arrow and he points it out in the distance and says, look. And the thing that he is looking at is the thing that we see next. It is a single wing, single engine helio courier seaplane. About 500 of these aircraft were manufactured in Pittsburgh, Kansas from 1954 until 1974 by the Helio Aircraft Company. But what really makes this shot impressive is the fact that there is a 200 foot long lead that goes from the plane down to a bunch of water skiers. Mm-hmm. A lot of this battle so far has felt stunt show-esque, but nothing more than this moment. So did you say there's only 500 of that plane that were made? That's what my research told me. How did this survive? <laughs> <laughs> How did it wind up in the hands of this movie if there's only 500 of them? Oh, that's true. Did they seek it out on purpose? It's not like it's particularly rare. I think it was particularly cheap when they went to buy it. Yeah. That was the main kicker. I don't know. From my perspective, it just sounds like if there's only 500 of something. Yeah, 500 made over the span of like 15, 20 years. That seems like incredibly few. I know that the market for seaplanes is not very large, I guess. But 500 doesn't seem like a big number. And it's not like it's the only kind of seaplane out there. Like there are still 
models of this specific seaplane that are registered and flying today. It's cool. I think maybe the world of seaplanes is just much smaller than our frame of reference. The world of seaplanes. The world World of of seaplanes. It sounds like a very niche documentary that I would absolutely watch. Narrated by David Attenborough, of course. (laughs) I don't necessarily watch a lot of live broadcast television, but I've never actually seen a commercial for seaplanes. So they're definitely not manufactured like cars. Right, because if there's only 500 of a model of car, it becomes incredibly valuable. Right, yeah. Even if it's a crap car. We get a... Good close-up on the pilot and the gunner that are on this plane. You may not recognize him here with all the stuff on his face, but the pilot is played by Jack Black. What? Are you for real? Okay, I knew that he was in this movie, and I'm still, like, confused by his presence. What? 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 (laughs) Does he fly planes? He flew this plane. That is legit Jack Black. In this shot here, that is Jack Black. I can see it. Huh. With the cigarette hanging out of his mouth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I can see it. That does look like Jack Black. Okay. I can sort of a little tiny bit see it. Is he that dark because of the lighting or makeup? Oh, it's yeah, makeup. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Because all of the smokers Everybody are covered in soot. Everybody is very sooty. Yeah. Okay. It's supposed to be soot? Yeah. yeah. It looks a bit unfortunate. Yeah. We, we talked about like the age of all of this mechanical stuff. Well, it's not aging that great. It puts out a lot of very dirty, greasy smoke. Mm-hmm. Everybody is dirty, mm-hmm. which is ugh, so frustrating. <laughs> I mean, if you spend enough time around things that make a lot of sit and grease, you will look like this. Yep. My uncle was a mechanic that worked on small engines, and if you spent a whole day doing it, testing him running, he would look like this. <laughs> yep. This seaplane also has a gunner. In the back there, and the seaplane gunner is played by John Tolez Bay. The water skiers down at water level, they seem very excited by what's about to happen. And the seaplane flies over the floating ramps. The water skiers split into two groups and go up over the ramp. There's a bit of incongruity because in the shot after they get to the ramp, it shows them all four on the same ramp, but it's a minor thing. And they fly through the air, over the top of the atoll wall, and splash down in the middle of the lagoon, which is such a bonkers move. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was a bonkers move for quite some time, too. And then watching it, they are still attached to the plane. So they are getting altitude help Mm -hmm. from the plane. So I feel much better about their jump than the jet ski jump. There's no way the jet ski made it over that wall. It is too heavy, and it did not have help. Right. And then this poor other water skier that just kind of hits the ramp crooked and then smashes right into the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like seeing that the smokers aren't infallible. They have the ability to screw up. Mm-hmm. We see yep. this guy go down. The dude that was climbing the siege ladder boat, he gets speared immediately when he reached the top of the ladder. These guys are not doing a clean sweep, taking everybody out automatically. Right. Some of them are just goons. (laughs) There's always room on the team for a goon. Yeah. Jack Black. That's crazy. (laughs) I know, right? How old was he in 1995? Oh, now you're asking the tough questions. Hold on. Mid-20s? He must have only been like a little over 20 years old. He was born in 69. Way older than I thought he was. He was only 26. Yeah, see? Mid-20s called it. So he's 51 this year. Yes. I thought he was closer to my age. I thought he was like 45. Maybe. I guess he is going really gray now. (laughs) Yeah, he's starting to. (laughs) You've seen him. He's got a big Santa beard now. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely in the same boat as you are, Julia, with not being completely convinced that the jet skis would be able to, of their own power, rocket over the wall of the atoll. There is a shot later on in this attack of a jet ski flying through the air, and it is so very clearly suspended by two wires, one at the front of the jet ski, (laughs) one at the back, that it suspends all willingness to believe that this is reality. Yeah. I have another logistics question about this world. Oh, boy. (laughs) We see people with cigars and cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Where, Where is the tobacco coming from? We haven't dug into that question yet. It is certainly something that becomes... Much more obvious and prevalent 
further along in the movie that we go, again, you really should watch the whole movie. Because <laughs> uh, tobacco definitely doesn't keep 400 years. Right. Yeah. We have not answered that question yet. No idea. Okay. Legit. Like if you seal it up in a plastic bag, that keeps it fresh, right? Right. Yeah. For a little while. Seal it up. Yeah. They'll squeeze all the air out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just vacuum sealed tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Because, uh, I mean, by the time you open it, it probably won't have any of the flavor left. <laughs> then you're just smoking it for the nicotine. <laughs> I have too many questions from this two minutes. That's why I said you need to get drunk first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have way too many questions from this two minute slice of movie. Something I love about the skiers who actually flew over the wall and landed in the lagoon area is that they don't get out of the water right away. They're in the water, treading water, shooting guts. (laughs) It's great. They knew exactly what they were getting into when they flew over that wall. It's like a Texas pool party. Just treading water, (laughs) shooting a gun in the air. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the deal with guns and getting wet? They don't work when you get them wet, right? Right. That depends. The main problem with guns getting wet is that the water gets in and it can cause corrosion in the metal, especially when you're in a salt water situation. Okay. So it's very important to properly dry, clean, maintain your firearms. They will still fire in water because the whole function of a gun is that you've got the firing pin and it hits the primer at the back of the round, and then the gunpowder inside the round explodes, forcing the bullet out. That's all a completely sealed in chemical reaction. So it can happen air, water. I'm assuming that it can even happen in a vacuum. vacuum? I don't know about a vacuum. Because you would need oxygen. I think firing a gun in space is one of those like great debates that we're just not really sure yet. Well, that's why we have a space force here in America. We need to send guns to space. If anyone can figure out how to shoot a gun in space, it's the American military. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Well, I mean, that's why they all have laser guns, right? Because you need you would need oxygen for the the yeah. There's no combustion. It depends on how much is inside the bullet itself. Yeah. But wouldn't the vacuum make the gun like explode or something? The thing that makes me want to believe. Because, oh, I want to believe so hard that a gun would work in space is because you can fire a bullet underwater where there is no air. Yeah. Because there's plenty of types of combustion that happen without oxygen. Yeah. the problem, like chemical reaction. The problem with firing a gun in space is that guns have recoil. Mm. So you and the bullet are going to, in theory, start traveling <laughs> yeah. away from each other. At, at the same speed. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. It's a slow-mo jetpack. It (laughs) stutters. That's how the Space Force moves around in space, is they just point their guns guns backwards (laughs) and start firing. You just have to be firing in opposite directions. But if you're even a little off, you'll just start spinning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you dip a gun in the water and shoot it, you're probably fine. It's just when you can, you need to clean it and take care of it. Exactly. Because over time... It's going to stop working. Okay. It's also important okay. to remember that bullets do not travel as far in water as they do in air. Right. There's which, more friction. Exactly. Because you can dive down two, three feet and be perfectly safe from any sort of bullet. You might occasionally get dinged, but not at a speed that's going to hurt you. Yeah. yeah. You'd get hit by the bullet as if I was sitting here in the office and I threw, threw it, it at, at you. at me. So it's totally <laughs> plausible that these skiers had weaponry on them were submerged on upon landing pulled their guns and started shooting yeah it would take a while for them to start really gumming up and it all depends on how well the gun is manufactured you've got well i can't imagine it's well manufactured at this point nothing here is well manufactured it matters how well manufactured the gun is the bullet is the purity of the gunpowder all goes into whether or not it'll fire underwater (laughs) one of the reasons the kalishnikov the ak-47 is such a well-known and well-traveled firearm is because it is so durable. Like you can drop some guns in a mud puddle for six weeks, pull them out, clean them off, and they fire perfectly fine because it's all about proper maintenance, which is also something that I don't really trust the smokers to do. No. <laughs> Look, we know that they are 
doing well enough, probably the best they can. Resources are becoming incredibly low, which we see with the condition of their ships and the jet skis and the smoke that all of these are producing. It's not good. But maybe that is efforts that are sacrificed in order to properly maintain their firearms. Yeah, they're doing the best they can, you guys. Yeah, just trying to get by. The logistics are killing me of everything. Because 500 years, what are they making cloth out of? Norman, did you notice in the scene where Gregor was throwing paper goods onto his gondola, he had a pile of books at the very beginning of that shot, and then he dropped them and went to the rolled up pieces of paper. The items in his hands, one of them was a Tacoma, Washington phone book. One of them was a car manual from the 70s. And one of them was a gentleman's magazine. What? <laughs> like how those things survived. Oh my I, God. I can't. I just, I can't. <laughs> oh, I wish people listening could see your face right now. <laughs> Did we break you, babe? I, I can't even deal with this. Like, paper, how does anyone write anything new down? Where'd they get the paper from? Just, I'm so, so mired in, in logistics of how this apocalypse would work. Mad Max at least leaves a giant portion of the land intact. Yeah, it's easier for things to survive if it's dry rather than it being Just humid. Is wet. Yeah. Yeah, everything is wet and that oh that drives me crazy when everything is wet. It's so gross. That's exactly why I have no interest in surviving an apocalypse. <laughs> nope. Oh my god. I don't want to live this in the damp. <laughs> All right, I will watch the movie. (laughs) If I watch it, I'm just going to be mad the whole time. (laughs) Just confused and angry. Well, now you absolutely need to watch it, Norman. There's no other outcome for this. I guess. guess. See, I feel like this is weird because normally I'm like this. Like normally, like he loves bad movies and I cannot turn my brain off enough to enjoy them. But like this is just bonkers enough where I'm like, all right, I'll allow it. Like, <laughs> And I just have too many questions. <laughs> That's fair. That's all right. I still have a lot of questions, and I not only bought the young adult novelization of the movie, <laughs> I also bought wow. the making of Waterworld companion booklet. Oh, bless. I, I would say it's booklet. This thing is really beefy. It's like 150 it's really pages. It's, yeah. It's got some really good stuff in it if you are interested in looking into it. But I still have plenty of questions. (laughs) It's one of the upsides of doing this minute by minute is that we can really dig into these things and be like, but why? Right. But but how? (laughs) Gregor. Gregor. He's got like an antique foam. Does he? This thing on the right, wherever we have it paused, it looks like an antique foam. It looks like a gas a gas Tank? pump? I don't know what that is. It's got like a horn on it. Yeah, it does kind of like look like a gas tank. There's like a pressurized tank thing off to the left next to it. He's a mad scientist. You got to outfit your lab with weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know what any of this stuff is. <laughs> I, you know what? He probably doesn't either. Right? He has a <laughs> 70s car manual. We were introduced to the stacks of books a couple of weeks ago. So we got to talk about them a little bit and... First of all, how on earth did these books survive? Especially the phone book. Those are particularly flimsy. Mm-hmm. How on earth did they survive? But for one, he can't read them. Okay. The language has been lost. The ability to read them has been lost. But we suppose that because the car manual is mostly diagrams, mm-hmm. that's probably how he figured out how to make a generator because mm. it's full of information about... I don't, things I don't know about, about Mm -hmm. engines and, I don't know, carburetors and alternators and all that kind of stuff. All that information is diagrammed in the book. So if you have a mechanical mind, then you can take those pictures and make them function. Right. So some of this stuff is probably him just trying to figure out, trying to replicate what's in that book. Mm -hmm. Mm. That makes sense. It produces some really bizarre things. Mm -hmm. Seriously, that contraption that looks like a gas tank i really have no idea what that is and it's a shame that as the seaplane flies over the atoll it's like firing its gun down at the people and poor gregor in his tower like everything starts exploding around him (laughs) yeah he's just trying to make his escape and like everything starts exploding (laughs) no 
Yeah, he is chaotic all by himself. <laughs> he doesn't need anything contributing to it. He has that vibe. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know what? It's the hair. Honestly, <laughs> it's the hair. It's the stitched together robe. Yeah. Whatever he's wearing. <laughs> it looks like he's taking a jug of water and like a 20 foot length of rope with him. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're going to need water. You're going to need rope. You're going to need uh, rolled up drawings. I certainly hope they're maps. You're going to need a... Maps of what? Water. Well, stars. <laughs> yeah. Probably star maps. Yeah. Yeah, star charts. On, yeah, honestly, right. they're probably star charts. <laughs> or as we like to call them up here in the Northeast, statchats. Statchats. Oh, Statchat. <laughs> just imagine 500 years in the future, someone sees a map of what the Earth used to look like. What is this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All of these explosions, they send Gregor stumbling, and at the very, very last moment of this clip, it is literally four frames of this clip, we see that there is a green wooden handle sticking up out of the deck of this tower, and that handle is going to do a lot in next week's episode, so we will have to leave it off for that. One of the rules established in this movie is that when two drifters meet, something needs to be exchanged. So Norman and Cassandra, could you let the people listening know where they can go back and find all of your Lord of the Rings stuff? Yeah. We're from the website, duelinggenre.com, or you can go to lordoftheringsminute.com. There are probably just shy of, if not over, 700 episodes of Lord of the Rings, if you're into this format and like lord of the rings we've done all three extended editions for that trilogy and then we're done yep (laughs) it's done it's it's, gone gone. we did what we set out to do yes we did (laughs) at this point you've sailed into wherever the elves go yeah Yeah. you've sailed to the west (laughs) meanwhile you just can't live in this world any longer no no (laughs) meanwhile we're just sailing in a general sense It's like Wind Waker. Yeah, exactly. An endless ocean. Yeah, I would highly suggest if you are at all even remotely interested in Lord of the Rings stuff, if you listened to us do our hiatus episode about Tolkien and thought, wow, these people know nothing about Tolkien, go listen to Norman and Cassandra instead, because they've actually read the material involved in the movie. (laughs) So it's a great listen. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. As for us, we will be coming back next time. We will see Gregor bungle his way into an irreversible action. A flying smoker will imperil the Mariner, and Helen will grab Enola to make a break for it. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 20. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.